Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the Not A Diving Podcast. I'm Scuba. And on the show this week, as you will have noticed, is the one and only Tiger. He is um, a very notable electronic contributor and someone who uh, was top of my list of people to get on this podcast when I started planning it out. He is a bit of an enigmatic figure uh, and a very, very intriguing person, as um, as you will discover over the course of this conversation. So, um, yeah, he is coming up. We uh, we talk about his breakthrough hit, Sunglasses at Night, his albums, and his um, carefully constructed public character that he um, conducts himself in in public to an extent. As we uh, as we discussed, so um, I think you'll enjoy the conversation. It was super fun to have. Just before we get into that, a uh, quick note to say: if you've got anything to add to the discussion, you can do so via Discord. Check the uh, show notes for a link to join us there. And I've shifted the any other business section of the pod to after the main conversation, just to keep this intro section down as uh, as far as possible. So um. So yeah, without further delay, here is Tiga. Tiga, welcome to the show. Uh, How are you doing, sir? I'm doing okay. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. I call you Paul, right? I mean, I use your real name, right? Please, please call me Paul. Yeah, let's let's not do any of that scuba stuff. Um, no. So. There's so many topics I want to get into, but just to get us started, I'll throw you this one. Um, to what extent is the current NFT market a massive cynical cash grab? Oh, God. Okay. It's a little early in the morning for me, but um, 
So, okay, how do I how do I start? Let me jump into. So, well, first of all, um, the whole NFT thing. I, I go up and down on it. Like, on a good day, I'm extremely excited about the whole space, and I I'm convinced it's the future, and I have that kind of buzzy feeling I've had at different times in my life when when you know something's really new and genuinely exciting. On other days, the whole thing makes me kind of tired and I, I long for a, a, a simpler, kind of more romantic, real-life experience in general. Now, that, that's kind of my personal experience. As far as if it's a cash grab, I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of the stuff in that space is, is super... Uh, douchey and not partic- not aesthetically pleasing, and a lot of it is a cash grab. A lot of it is, but you know, I think that can be ignored. And there's a lot of interesting stuff to be done for artists. So I, I'm I'm quite positive on the whole thing. I think in the end, I my theory is it's like everything, right? You know, if you go into a record store, you know, ninety percent of the records are shit. You know, and and you have to really work to find the special records, and it's like that with everything. And I think that space as well. Um, yeah. So I think, uh, yeah, 90% cash grab, 10% cool. I don't know. 95%, yeah. 95% <laughs> okay, cash right. grab, 5% cool. But also the, the, yeah. the, the, the numbers are going to change, you know, things are going to shift, um, as, as more, uh, it's been, you know, it's dominated right now by the crypto community by and large. And as that shifts to different artistic communities and different types of people feel more comfortable, it's gonna, the, that, the, the uh, the quality will shift as well. Yeah, I mean, sorry, that was a bit of an ambush. Um, and obviously it's in the context of, of you having just released one as well. Yeah. So, um, like, how, <laughs> no I mean, how... Ta- <laughs> I'm, I'm, normally, I'm, I'm normally super, super into ambush questions. Like, I like that approach. I just, I'm, I'm just kind of warming up myself here. And, and you know, it's, it's... Also, it's tricky. Some of these things, like, NFT is one of those things where, like, you know... It's all it's all messed up now because in the context of COVID, you know, everybody's lives are changed a bit. Your artistic lives have shifted a bit. You don't have all the things you used to have. So you put a lot of emphasis onto things that you otherwise might not. NFT is a perfect example of that. You know, it's like under normal circumstances, I probably wouldn't be thinking about it as much as I am. But as it is, you, you put a lot of stock into it because it's new and you're at home, you know? Well, that's, yeah, that's basically the topic in, on which I wanted to... Um to get into uh in a little bit more detail um which is really the sort of musician as a as an entrepreneur can i can i just can i can i just add one thing just simple thing about the whole nft crypto thing it's like i think it's i think it's super super exciting for artists like i am i'm really really pumped and simply i think if i was 16 or whatever the age that i started all my other rave stuff and everything i think if i were a kid now starting out I'd be well into it and there wouldn't be any kind of conflict. There wouldn't be any, uh, it's, it's just, it's just a great opportunity. You know, I think like there's only upside really. I mean, how, how like tech savvy are you with, with the whole thing? I'm not very tech savvy. I'm, I'm, I'm really not very tech savvy. I mean, I've, I'm decent with, I mean, I have a certain facility. Like I was always into, I was always into like statistics and fantasy football and, poker and stock trading and those things all kind of dovetail perfectly with crypto and the world in general has caught up to that whole model like everyone's everyone basically considers himself a trader in one way or other it's just it's just the language has just taken over which is why these things are all so popular so i'm kind of i'm kind of comfortable with that end of it as far as the actual uh 
the, the white papers and the tech. No, I, I know nothing. I mean, it's for me, it's like, it's like how much I know about how my TV works. I, I don't. Like when did you when did you get into the whole? I mean, well, how 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 into the whole crypto thing are you? And if so, like when when did you first dip your toe in? Um, I started. It's pretty funny. I, well, funny. It's not funny. It's it's not a good joke. But it. But, oh, is this a mil- <laughs> is this a million lost Bitcoin story? <laughs> no, no, I don't have any of those. I have a, I have I've I've had a pretty good pretty good experience. No, it started for me actually. I was in Ibiza at my house in, in Ibiza in 2017 in the summer, and a friend of mine came over. And he was like one of these early Ethereum people, like, but not, not, not like, right. not a, not like a speculative guy, more like a tech guy. He was just really into the, the blockchain end of it and the science of it and everything. And he sat me down for just like an hour or so and just talked about it. And, and it was the first time it reminded me a lot of like the early rave days, you know, just when you, when you bump into someone who's like really evangelical, just really, really passionate about something and they explain it well. And it kind of held my hand and, and that got me into it. Previously to that, I had zero interest in Bitcoin. I thought it was trash. I, I wish I hadn't thought that, but I had no interest in the whole space, nothing. And the funny thing is that night, I remember I told myself, I was like, you know what? I was DJing that night with Pete Tong, uh, at oh, Jesus, I can't remember. One of those outdoor parties, like an outdoor beach club like, kind of thing. Like a Schwire or something? It was a smaller one. It was like, I, I don't remember what it, I should remember. I don't remember anything from the DJ years. Nothing. It's like, I don't remember. <laughs> I barely, I remember your name. I remember some key moments. But, but uh, <laughs> anyway, I went and I remember telling myself, you know what? Why don't you just put your fee tonight into Ethereum? You know, just like, what the hell? You know, just like, so that was the beginning for me. It was that night in 2017. And well, that's pretty, I mean, that's pretty early, really. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, it's early enough. I think a lot of adoption with these things, I, I really believe it comes down to, <clears throat> it comes down to when you have that conversation with somebody, all the other stuff, you know, all the stuff in the newspapers, all the, all the, sorry, not newspapers. I sounded a hundred years old, all the stuff online. <laughs> All the all the yeah. all the headline stuff usually just kind of creates FOMO, and and you know most people, especially a lot of creative people, there's like a cycle where like you know the 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 feeling that you're late to something kind of turns to like bitterness, and then you're kind of like against it, but really secretly you're just against it because you wish you were part of it, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. You see that a lot in the NFT space too, I think. But anyway, a lot of the time, what what ends all that is just you know, someone kind of holding your hand, someone you trust and, and explaining a little bit more what's behind it, not so much the money end of it. And then that's usually the entry point. So yeah, for me, but crypto is like, you know, the whole thing, I don't want to oversimplify it, but my experience with crypto has essentially been the same as experience with gambling. It, it's very, 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 very similar uh, in terms of the role it plays in, in my life. When you say gambling, do you, do you include stock trading in that? Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah. Gambling, I mean, in its most overt form, that would be like, you know, playing poker or going to the casino, but it's really all the same thing. It, it's, it's all the, the, the place it plays in your life and in your head. Um, the, 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 the feelings it releases, the ideas of the illusions of control, the, the little, the meaningless victories, the meaningless defeats, the, the, the whole thing is just a giant distraction, which, you know, most people, most people have some understanding of it. And, you know, if you, 
I don't know. It's just, it's just something I've never, I've never been a drinker. I don't do drugs. I've never really had problems with anything, but I always, since I have a little, little kid, I do have a little bit of a weakness for, you know, it started like playing cards and things like that. And crypto is, you know, it's very similar right. to that. I, okay. So you see it, you see it in those terms. That's really interesting. I mean, it's funny because I mean, we're at a point now where, you know, I think this generation and and I mean you're a little bit older than me I think not 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 too much I'm, but I'm, certainly I'm 32 the, so yeah I'm tw- I'm 27 so <laughs> that's, that's that's about right uh, um, but but certainly the, the generation that's young now um, they really don't have they they can't count on you know like pensions in the way that I mean I mean our, our generation is still I mean we didn't get much of that but you know our, our parents certainly could expect you know a job for life <clears> and like you know to be taken to, to be taken care of in their old age and all that kind of stuff and. Like the the way people mm. think about investing now, like young people, I, I think is tied to that. But it also has this kind of like gambling sort of nihilistic element to it too. Oh yeah, definitely. Which is an extremely like bad combination of things. You know, it's really 100%. like doing what should be like, you know, the most responsible thing that you do in your life, combining that with like this like destructive impulse, you know. It's, oh yeah, yeah. The, the whole thing, you know, it's, it's kind of a perfect storm and, and obviously none of it is by accident, you know? I mean, if you look at, you know, in the old days, casinos, for example, you know, they, they have tactics, you know, whether, whether it's, you know, there's no clocks on the walls or they pump a little extra oxygen, you know, and the idea, none of those things happen by accident. You know, everything is geared to, to keep people at the tables. Well, that, that type of thinking, that kind of strategic thinking to keep people gambling, that has become like society wide. I mean, it, 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 you know, we have, we have the phones, which are next to your bed. I mean, they are like the ultimate gambling devices and, and every single system is geared towards, uh, enhancing, not just the use of not just products that are actually directly gambling, but, um, they push you towards that like sensibility, you know, like, cause everything is a little bit the same, you know, there, there's, I remember I'm jumping around a little bit, but I remember thinking this, like when they started with like DJ uh, rankings and stuff, I remember the first thing I thought was just like, it's just an ever increasing kind of numerical data based view of things. And people got, people have gotten really, really used to it. Number of likes, number of comments, number of followers. You know, that's that's the uh, Spotify rap thing. The whole thing, the whole thing. It's the whole, yeah. But but that's, I mean, like, so, so if you're somebody, I, I always, you know, let's say I loved things like fantasy football, which are very, very much based on numbers of, so you, you see it slowly just really infiltrate the mainstream and just, just become part of how everyone deals with things. And yeah, so when it comes to the gambling and the, I guess we're just seeing it like society wide. It's just how everyone, everyone's so comfortable with it. Same with all the finance shit, you know, things that 10 years ago, if you would have heard someone say, you would, you know, if you hear someone talk about derivatives or blah, 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 you'd be like, oh, you're, you're, you work in the city or you're in finance. And now it's just like, that's just how everyone talks. It's just the language. But the, the most, for our conversation to segue a bit into the, into music or art or whatever, I think really the most, the scariest part, the most dangerous part, and this is something personally I've always dealt with, is I think that all those, you know, being in the metaphorical casino or whatever, it's just such a different brainwave. It's such a different mental 
pattern from the kind of patterns that are truly creative. You know, it's just such a, it's their worlds apart. And, and I think, I don't know that the, the, there's such an infringement on a lot of just like the free creative thinking by all those other things. It's a bit like an attack, you know? I don't know if I'm talking too much personally, but I feel like a lot of people are, are, are wrestling with that, whether they know it or not, you know? Well, I think um, I think everyone who does, you know, anything creative and particularly in music, you always struggle, or certainly there is the tendency to struggle um, between doing something that you think is going to be commercially successful, not even necessarily commercially successful, just, just successful you know, on some level. And as you say, like the, the, the gambler's mentality is, is, is kind of in that ballpark. And, but it is, it's just not how you should be thinking at all in order to get to, you know, get to the, the best of what you're capable of creatively. I mean, it's really the, yeah, the, the total opposite. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, so there is a strange, there's a bit of a paradox. I mean, I definitely think that creative people there is an element of gambling in it. I mean, you know, you, there is, there's an element of risk in what you do and, and you never quite know the result and you do kind of roll the dice in a sense uh, when you, you know, you, you make a record or you make an album and you kind of then see what it does. And there's a bit of a lottery type aspect to that. But uh, I think what's, what was always nice about that is, is there's like much more mystery to it. You know, you, you simply don't know what will happen when you make something. And that kind of gray area, that like artistic not knowing, it is actually kind of like a cool place, even if it's not always if it, yeah. even if it's not always pleasant, you know? Whereas the uh the number zone is all about uh increasingly uh precisely quantifying everything. I don't know if that's too like well, <laughs> too No no absolutely. I mean I think I think you know I think you know as a as a creative person, whether you've done good work, yes. you know, you know whether, but whether that's going to translate into, you know, the wider world, you know, appreciating no, you, you it in know. the way that they should, that is a complete crapshoot. And like, no one can really tell a hit record. I mean, you can have a sort of inkling of it, but like, you know, certainly when we've had successful records on the label, you know, I've had a, you know, an idea, but like the, there's been ones where I just had, you know, no clue and they've just flown. And I'm sure it's the same for you on, yeah. on Turbo. Yeah. Only Max Martin knows. <laughs> right. He, he, okay. There are, there are a few people that seem to really know what a hit is, but, but yeah, I know. I, I, I agree. I mean, totally. I, I, you, it's funny when you make a record, I, I think the best ones are the ones where you, you simply, you love it so much that you just don't care about the reaction. That's my favorite zone. They're those ones where you just like, you just know it's dope and you're kind of like, you're like equally satisfied when people hate it or love it because you're just so right. overconfident. <laughs> I, I like that one. Yeah, totally. It's a great, it's a great space to be in. Um, anyway, I wanted to talk about in this sort of vague area, I, I wanted to talk about the sort of musician as an entrepreneur in like navigating through just life, mm. trying to survive making music. I mean, yeah. I was uh, um, intrigued to learn today in doing a little bit of reading for this that you were a, a record store owner at a very young age. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. You want to tell me, <laughs> tell me a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I opened a record store in, I think it was, it was 94. It was called uh, DNA Records. It's quite a, quite a ravey name. 
of course the logo was like a, a molecule or whatever, which was right, <laughs> which was the fashion at the time. Um, yeah. So I, well, I, when you're, when I was a kid, I just wanted to have good records. You know, I was one of those kids who were like, you know, my, I was one of those kids who like, you know, you go to school and you're trying to get everyone to, to buy a tape or, or you, you, you know, you identify so closely with music and you're kind of like, that's who you are and you want to share it and show off and all that kind of stuff. So really the key was finding records and it wasn't so easy here. And then when I, when I, uh, when I first started DJing and got into techno and started throwing uh, parties and stuff, the next step after that was like, well, I need my own shop because in Montreal, it was like a real house city, um, very much based on New York. And they were quite snobby. They're all like, they were all like kind of, it was a very gay, very house scene. And I wanted like super hard techno and they were all kind of, they were like mildly accommodating, but they all saw it as a bit of a joke, you know? And, And I was like, I was like, no, Techno's going to take over the world. You're all going to pay. Like I was really, I was really an unpleasant character, actually. Um, I was so, I was like so uh, fanatic, uh, fanatical about the whole thing. Anyway, so I was like, I'm going to open my own store. And yeah, I opened. But I mean, this is a big, this is a big jump, right? As a, as a young man, like opening your own thing is yeah, like this. It, it seems like that when I, when I talk about it now or like looking back on it, it seems like a big thing, but it didn't seem like a big thing at the time. I don't know what, I don't know exactly. It's hard for me. I, I'm not a... Did you know any, Did you know anything about running any kind of retail, no, retail no, thing? No, no, it's, no. It's funny when I think about it now, I, I, there's some things in the years that happened after that. Well, I was this entrepreneurial period. I, I was just super confident and I just was like, do it. I would just do things like immediately. And I think about it now because I actually delay a lot more now. And, and I oftentimes, sometimes I romanticize, I'm like, shit, that the ultimate weapon is just no hesitation, you know, which, which kids are good at sometimes when you're, when you're young and you're confident, you're just like, yeah, fuck it, whatever. I don't, I don't. Absolutely. I mean, like, you know, it's, it's, it's a cliche, but you know, kids are not scared of anything. Well, you, and that's why they send them to war, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's what happened to me. I was like going to war, but it was like rave, rave war. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but no, but with the record shop, yeah, it's so crazy when I think about it now. I remember, I just, no, I had no clue. And I remember I had a shoe box filled with money. Like I would just, I, didn't, I, I barely understood taxes. I had, I was running all the credit cards through like a partner and I just put all the money in these boxes. It was a bit the same as throwing parties actually. And then I, I do, right. and I remember at one point, like three, four months in going to the bank with these boxes full of cash. They were like, what are you doing? Like what's... <laughs> And it was a, but you know what? The record store was a, it was, it was really fun because it was like a real clubhouse. I mean, it was really, I've always maintained that you'll never be as close to the music as if you're working in a record shop. You know, that it's just, you just know every B side, you, you're just so, you know, everything, you know, but, uh, and it was fun for the community. You know, it was like, that's where all the flyers were. That's where we sold all the tickets to the events and everything. But also it was like really, really really hard work record store. I mean, what, it was, I mean, no doubt. What, what were you, what were you stocking though? Where were you, and where were you getting, well, I mean, obviously I'm presuming you were importing stuff yeah, yeah. from Europe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so. I think we, we were, so at the beginning we were like, the focus was everything I was into, which at the beginning was, this is funny. I've never talked about this actually. So it was very, 
It was heavy techno. There was actually quite a lot of trance in those years because I was into Goa trance in like 94, 95. Yeah, me too. Uh, Absolutely. Dragonfly and Platypus and all those labels. Yes. And, yeah, yeah. But actually, um, we were selling a lot of CDs and it seems impossible that this could happen now, but we were like the only place you could get a lot of the import CDs. So things like even things like homework, like Daft Punk and stuff, like we were selling boxes of those CDs and HMV wasn't even carrying them at the time. So we were also, wow. and we were selling a lot of, uh, I'm not proud to say this, but a lot of, uh, well, there was a lot of ambient stuff, which is great. We were selling a lot of early Aphex Twin and a lot of, but also a lot of like borderline trip hop. You know, there's a lot of, and, and trip hop. There was a lot of Moax and, uh, that li- well, that was the uh, the golden age yeah. of trip hop, if there if there yeah. if such a thing yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exists. No, there was, and it was. I mean, it it hasn't aged particularly well, but it was a cool thing for a record store because like there was amazing packaging and it was cool. And we also did a lot of drum and bass, which um, really yeah, a lot. We were it was a big wow. So I mean, so you must have been turning over a ton. Yeah, we were. It was really. It was. It was. I mean, the margins were crazy. Like, it's like the war. I, I mean, I meant, of, I meant of records there, not money, but I mean, the money must have come too. Or as, no, no, as there was said, not a... Shoe, shoe boxes full of it. Well, there was not a... No, no, what I mean by the margins, like the business model was absurdly bad. Like, I'm talking, you know, you'd, you'd buy a 12-inch... You know, by the time it got to Canada, a 12-inch would cost like $10. You'd sell it for like 13 So, like, all yeah, right. all you had to do was have one stuck on the shelf, and it's like a loss, you know. But but <laughs> but whatever. I was so young. None of us cared. It was like the center of the universe. And, and you know, I had boxes for all the local DJs. And But more important than anything, I just got all the best records. I mean, from those years, from 94, 95, 96, I have every good record. And I would... I didn't care. It could be like an inside cut on a compilation. I'd buy the whole thing for one. You know, I just had everything good. And it serves, you know, that serves you really well uh, forever, you know. And you were promoting parties at the same time as this? Yeah. Well, you said the parties, the parties came first. Is that, is that right? Or yeah, I started, which were- the parties came first. The parties were the first because the parties were the only way I was going to get booked. So I just, yeah, I mean, I, I, I cheated, had that one too. Cheat, cheat the system, you know, create the demand. But I mean, that's, that's why I started a label because no one else would release one. Yeah, same. I mean, same. That's, I think, I think, look, it's probably how most things start, you know? Yeah, I started throwing parties in 90, 93, I think I threw my first one. And, but the parties were a big deal. I mean, they grew really fast. It was very much like standard. If you pick up any of those like rave histories in the UK, you know, it was, it was the exact same yeah. story, you know, where you... So what were, yeah, I mean, just give us a little snapshot of, of what Montreal was, was like. It was sort of pre that whole thing, like... Well, go on. Before, so. before that or, or like what... Yeah, like, so what was, what was the, what was the, uh, the kind of environment you were getting started in? Because uh, by the sound of things, you were basically the first amongst the first yeah. to actually do any kind of stuff like that in Montreal. Yeah, well, there was already, so, um, okay, so when I was like... So I finished high school and I went to this like college. It's something you do. I guess I was 16 or 17. And so I was already buying records. I was into records, but I didn't know anything about DJing. But I was buying a lot of industrial and I was into hip hop and I don't know, I guess new wave and all that stuff. Then, um, yeah, I, I saw... I saw a TV show. I was flying back from a trip with my parents. I was in Switzerland in a hotel room and I saw a little clip on TV 
with uh, Sven Vaith, who I, I didn't know who he was at the time. I didn't know anything. It right. was like a tiny little clip on a news show about this thing called techno or whatever. And it was a little clip of Sven Vaith DJing some underground party in Germany or whatever. And I was like, holy shit. Okay. My whole world <laughs> in like 15 seconds, my whole world was like, okay, that, that is what I'm going to do with my whole life. Like that is everything. So I got home and I started buying like compilation CDs and you know, whatever. And I just started getting, and I started going out to these clubs and the clubs at the time, there was a really good warehouse scene in Montreal. There was a very, very good gay house scene. It was very much modeled on New York because um, right. we're pretty close. The DJs were excellent. I mean, it was really, it was a, it was a thriving, really good, uh, cool scene. All local DJs. Yeah, all local. I mean, I think, yeah, it was all local. I mean, I was the first person, I think, to start that idea of flying in DJs. I think I was the first. No, nah, maybe not. There might have been... Some of the gay, like the, the, some of the circuit parties might have already been going on. Maybe like a guy like Junior Vasquez might have come once or something. I don't know. Anyway. Right. So that was, that was the scene. And, and then ecstasy hit the city, I guess, uh, around 93 in this club called Crisco. Um, it won't mean, an, right. it won't mean anything to, it was like, anyway, Crisco was like ground zero. So I started going there when I was a kid. That was like our... Studio 54 kind of thing. And it was legitimately fucking incredible. I mean, it wasn't... It, and when you, when you say ecstasy hit the scene, you literally mean pills became yeah, available. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Not, not just available. They were, it was the first time, you know. I mean, they had been around for a while, but I, I, not for a while. They had been around probably for like really, really cool, like hip, hip people. I don't, certainly not for a 17-year-old kid, you know. But, yeah, but, right. but I mean, in terms of like what we now know is you know, that kind of summer love thing of like, you know, everyone on the same pills and everything that started yeah. at that, yeah. at that club. And when that happened, that 93, so. yeah, 93. Yeah. And yeah. so when that happened, then I was like immediately, okay, now I got to start doing my own parties because this is great, but they're playing Robert Owens records and they're not playing Trezor records, you know? And, and so, <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Which, and so, and then, and then I just started throwing parties and they started small, but very, very quickly. Um, oh no, sorry. That was 92, uh, Crisco by 93, by March of 93, I threw my first like big party and it was the first giant like rave in the city. And it was just massive success, you know, like just whatever, 4,000 people, I had a backpack full of money and I'm dancing in the morning and, you know, the whole, all rave dreams realized, platform shoes, a light on my head, the whole thing, you know. Right. Okay. So, <laughs> I mean. <laughs> There's a lot to, lot to I can, unpack I can, I, I can picture the scene exactly. <laughs> but again, like doing it, doing it yourself. Mm. I mean, you know, taking a step back and, and thinking about it, like, I mean, we've yeah covered the sort of like kids have no fear thing. But I mean, was there any, I mean, I guess like, you know, nightclub scenes in cities can be pretty political places and they can be pretty dangerous yeah, places, yeah. actually. Like, like, so was there any of that going on? Was there any kind of like, you know, did you tread on any toes? Oh, yeah. People, was there... oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And especially here and especially in Montreal, because Montreal... Well, Montreal has always been a bit, it's kind of, it's a little bit dodgy in general. And uh, we also have a massive like Hells Angels 
uh, we have a big, a lot of biker gangs who control the drugs in the city or they always did. And, you know, it's, it's always been, we have a low drinking age here. It's always been seen as a much more like, I don't know, I guess in a way like how Amsterdam or Berlin are seen as more liberal, slightly debauched places. So, so yeah. So when I was a kid, well, again, I guess the magic ingredient was like, I just didn't know any better. Um, it is insane. And also too, like I'm English and almost everyone here is French. And I also came, right. and I also came from like what would be considered quite a posh background, you know? So I, I was, I was not, um, I don't know. It's hard to say. I was just, I guess I was just like a little hustler, you know, I just was like, fuck it. I'm just, I, get, I don't know. I was. Were there any situations in which you found yourself that were, you know, dodgy? Did you? Oh did, yeah, yeah, Did yeah, you yeah. ever have, you know, cause? Oh well, yeah, yeah. Of course, of course, of course. I mean, oh my god, there's lots of things. Well, I mean, routinely you were meeting with representatives from the gangs, you know, to decide, you know, who's selling where. You were routine. Really? Wow. Oh yeah, okay. you're routinely meeting with the police and with the fire inspectors and all those people. Then in terms of. Uh, yeah, this is. I've, sorry to jump. Sorry to interrupt. But yeah. this is not something I've experienced because I've, I've I've put on parties, but I've always done it at you know at venues where you know, the venue owner dealt with that stuff. No, no. You know? I, I, so this so this is this is news to me. So yeah, give, no, give me some had, more of this. Had, this is super interesting. No, well, we had. Okay, so hold on. Let me. There's there's a lot of different stages. So in the in the rave. Okay, because I opened a big nightclub in 1990. It was called Sona. You mean, you mean a venue? Yes. So what happened was... <laughs> really? Wow. Oh, I mean, come on, man. Hold on. This is the- <laughs> hold on. <laughs> Let me get it right. Okay. So 92, the raves start and I'm trying, whatever. 94 is the record store. Yeah. 96 is the nightclub. So 96, I opened this place called Sona. And this was... A- oh, so, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but um, you're, you're kind of established as a promoter in the city yes, at this point. Exactly. Yes, right. yes. Yep. So anyway, but that's when... Things got much more dodgy then because then you're really with the big boys, you know, you're really competing directly with other nightclubs and and that's, so to rewind, before we get to that, I mean, in the rave days, and and I used to travel a lot, there was like an East Coast circuit, you know, you would go to parties in New York, you go to parties in Boston, you go to parties in, in, you know, all along in Philadelphia and those things were crazy dodgy. I mean, all the, the rave scene in the East Coast, I guess it was probably the same in England at the time. You know, it was just total like fly by night. There were no, they were all kids, so much drugs, loads of money, dodge, like just loads of dodgy situations because it attracted all kinds of, yeah, I mean, just weird people. So you had, I'm trying to think of specifics, but I mean, God, there was so many nights where, you know, whatever you got to, there was so many nights, for example, where you, you steal the turntables at the end of the night because you're not getting paid properly or, yeah, right. or, or where you, you know, where I also remember jumping forward a bit. I mean, just for some glamour, like I, like one of two different security guys in my clubs were assassinated, were actually shot, Whoa. were straight up shot by rivals, like on duty. No, 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 not, or... not on duty. Well, it would, well, no, <laughs> right. but usually what would, what would start, it would start on duty because somebody would try to get in or somebody from a different, um, cause there's some rival gangs, you know, somebody would try to get in, they'd get turned away and they would, you know, decide that they were going to get revenge, whatever at some right, point. Yeah, that's, and, the know, that's the classic, right? You know. yeah. But, yeah. but okay. But in fairness though, it, you know, I wasn't, 
I wasn't like one of the, the Cray brothers or something. You know, I, I was, <laughs> I was, I was usually, I was usually there for, because I provided either like this, the, the, the cred from a promotional angle or the music or the programming. So, you know, I also always had partners that were doing a lot of the heavy lifting when it came to like the really, really dodgy stuff, you know, and, and I was, I was allowed to be more kind of the cool kid who, who, uh, but yeah, I, I did definitely, it's wild now when I think of how much time I spent with so many like scumbags and weird, <laughs> Right. <laughs> but, but all of it, all of it, I think what, what did happen was all of that, especially the late nineties, it left in me a real feeling of like, shit, this is not what I want to really be doing. And I want to be just making music and DJing and I want to be with creative people. And so by the end of the nineties, and that's when I made sunglasses at night and stuff. And, and I, I had already had all these phases where I was like, no, I, I don't, I don't want that. You know, I want something much more creative and a life as an artist, not, not so much life as an entrepreneur, you know? Right. And that was, yeah, the, the best part of a decade really spent spent doing that. When did when did the sunglasses at night come out? I think it's around two thousand and one. I think two thousand and one. We made it. We made right. we made it on New Year's Eve. Um, it was the night, not ninety nine to two thousand. It was the whatever two thousand to two thousand and one. We me and Yori made it. I think on New Year's Day on the the first day of two thousand and one, and then it came out a few months later. <clears throat> yeah, I. It's funny because I was trying to remember like wh- how like how aware I was of that because I was at the time I was like a garage DJ on Pirate Radio in London so like I had definitely heard of you like earlier than that because I remember like fucking I thought I, I think I remember seeing the um that first mix CD where you're in full makeup oh yeah looking mixed extremely cat right yeah yeah <laughs> I remember seeing that in mix mag or something mm. and then but and then knowing and then obviously hearing sunglasses at night because of his mass June but not knowing it was you and actually only relatively recently well I say relatively recently in the last 10 years that I actually clocked that that was actually your record mm. but um because I mean obviously you've done so much stuff since since then but like so that was like a hard inflection point then is that what you're saying like yeah uh, in terms of yeah <coughs> well it's funny I mean Okay. First of all, like, I'm not going to say I'm, I'm whatever. I'm an, I'm an older gentleman at this point. And, and the, the amount of time is so massive now, you know, that like you talk about, there's just so much to cover, you know, like I, I, I this, it's just cause it's, yeah, yeah, it's just we're not, don't worry, we're, we're not going to, we're, we're not going to go through your no, entire no, no, career. No, don't worry. I'm, I'm just, <laughs> no, no, I don't mind. I, I just mean that in general, even for me, when I think back on it, it's like, I, it's hard to even get your head around it just because there are all these chapters and each one was quite long. And anyway, but the, yes, there was the hard inflection point. Well, simply put like it, late nineties, I was not very happy with how things were going. I was DJing weekly at my club, this club called Sona, but I was not, I don't think anyone really cared about what I was doing. Like the music I was playing, I was playing quite hard techno. It was quite boring. Right. It was quite boring. Um, it reminds me a lot of in a lot of ways that cycle has repeated itself. Like I was just playing music. It was like, it just wasn't, it was good, but it was like a bit dull. It wasn't really connecting with anybody. Um, at the same time, yeah, I was just kind of in a rut, you know, I, I didn't really get why everyone else seemed to be having more fun and doing better than me. Um, and, but I wasn't really committed creatively either. I was just kind of like a little bit going through the motions and, and, 
whatever. Anyway, then were you? Were you? Yeah. Sorry to jump no, no, in, no but problem. were you um, like? How widely were you playing then? Because obviously you were well established in Montreal, but like, like what, it was, what was the kind of like orbit that you were it was, inhabiting? At that point, it was almost all Montreal and a few shows in Canada. I had had a little, so in the, I would say like, I did DJ up and down like the, in the rave years. So like between 94, um, between like 94 and 97 or so, I was DJing quite a lot in North America. So I'd play in New York, I'd play in California once in a while. Like I was, I was like a minor character on that circuit enough to the point that when I came home, I was a bit of a hero, but you know, it it was, I, I was part of that touring circuit in the North American rave scene. But by the, by the late nineties, it was mostly just local. You know, I was like a big fish in a small pond kind of thing. Anyway, I, w- I was like, I was not thrilled with how things were going. And, uh, the, that mixed CD mixed emotions, which you mentioned, that was probably the biggest thing in the biggest turning point of my career. I mean, obviously sunglasses and night had the bigger impact, but the, the line in the sand, like for me myself was that mixed emotion CD, because essentially what, what I did was I was just like, and it reminds me quite a lot of now in a way, I mean, it, where I was just like, all of this, what I'm doing is not really me. You know, I'm not really, that's, whereas I want to look like a pop star. I want to make music that shows more of my real influences. I want more, you know, I want to, I, I want that presentation. And, and I really went for it with that mixed emotions. And that was like, no one asked for that. You know, there was no, that was hundred percent like my fantasy world. Like it wasn't, there was no demand. It wasn't like I was part of a scene or something, but everything. But that's that's really interesting. And but it obviously did connect. Oh, Im- you know, immediately. Go, 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 immediately. Going back to what we were saying before about how you know you never really know, but if you do something that you are you're know, committed to creatively and you're you're you know 100 satisfied. Yes. Like, and and then it does connect. This is, this is good, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. That's the best feeling in the world. Like those moments. And also too, I mean, I think I'm really, I'm very optimistic in general. Like I'm an optimist and I really, I'm a, and I'm a romantic when it comes to music and success. And I, I really do believe that like the market, people are pretty smart, you know, people have pretty good taste in general. And I, I generally, my experience has been, if you do something that you really, really love, and if you really put yourself out there, and we all know privately the differences. We all know privately when we are really risking something or when we're not. Even if sometimes we can fool people, we know the difference. So if you really, really risk, you really go out on a limb, uh, then usually it, it works. And, and when it does, and that was a perfect example. I mean, what happened in the, the six months after I put out that Mixed Emotions CD, it was like a, it was like a montage from an 80s movie. You know, it was just like, Right. Yeah. Everything started to happen. Every dream came true fast and, and in such an exciting, natural way and met a giant community of people. We all liked the same things. Um, the parties were incredible. I started traveling. Um, I got accepted into the kind of club that I always had wanted to be a part of, you know? Yeah. I was listening to your, your, your pod with, with Errol, Errol Alcan, mm. uh, recently. And, um, he was describing about when you guys met, which is like, I'm guessing this is around this time, right? Yeah. And that's, I guess yeah. what you're kind of what you're talking about in terms of, but it sounds like there were quite, there were a few of you who, um, who that 
you know, it happened to you all at the same time. Yes. Is that fair? Yeah. I think, well, yeah, there was like, yeah, and it was, I guess, you know, Miss Kitten and the Hacker and um, Errol and too many DJs and who else, I guess. But even also in a way, our community, like even like LCD Sound System and Peaches, and even though we weren't musically directly connected, we were all friends and all kind of coming up at the same time. And, and, and I was, and obviously for me personally, like, DJ Hell and that whole Gigolo crew was was super important, and uh, David Coretta and Vitalik and you know the Hacker, all the, all those. It's worth just like stressing again that see te- this is something I know you know because I think we've talked about. I mean, you know techno, which which is probably my one of my first loves. You know techno has a tendency to get boring. You know, it kind of veers towards a weird conservative side. I don't know why, even though it always starts really future, it, it, it always, it, it tends to kind of veer to, towards like a uniformity. And for me in the late, I mean, no, sorry, go. Yeah. I was just going to say that I, I think it, um, it attracts people who are very um, ideological, I think mm, in their yeah. approach to music. So you get, so it goes through cycles where, um, it's it's great and it's like seemingly like as you said futuristic and it you know it's the sound of the future etc et and all that stuff but there are there is a definitely a, a kind of like peak and trough you know boom bust yeah. cycle element to it yeah and I, I and it must be just something to do with like you know who it attracts yeah I think well I think the reasons are I think first of all a lot of the music is made alone which I think as opposed to, you know, bands or, or more like partnerships, I think when you're doing stuff alone, you can get a little bit kind of up your own ass in a way, like you can lose the plot a little, not, not everybody, but I also think too, it's, it's generally like functional music. So you start to think it's enough that it functions, which, which often it is, but, but I also think too, it just gets a bit serious sometimes. Like sometimes you kind of forget about the fun factor, you know? Anyway, the reason I bring all that up was it was just, that's, that was what was happening for me in the in the in the late '90s because the rave years were fucking incredible, right? It was like, you know, just it was hard, happy hardcore and regular hardcore and breaks and records that were blowing your mind. I mean, if you listen to an old alternate record or you listen to, you know, early early drum and bass records, like there's so much happening, there's so much excitement, there's so many ideas. It's like it's the sound of kids with no rules making crazy shit, you know? So that, that was like all the early nineties. Then it got a little bit boring. So the reason, part of why Electro and all that and my career, part of why those years were so exciting was it was like just a return to like having fun and, and yeah, it, it felt like having fun again. And it was, it was really. The 2000s are a sort of underrated decade I find like everyone kind of harks back to the nineties and obviously Mm. there were so many things that were born there and so many different styles, so much going on, but like the 2000s were really interesting in a way because like many of the things that happened then were a kind of refinement of of some of the things that came up in the late eighties and and nineties. And I think that that whole electro, I I was going to ask you actually, like what was your view of the term electro clash? Was that just some bullshit or like, was that a thing or how did you guys refer to what you were doing at the time? Yeah, it was kind of a bullshit thing. I mean, I think the lines were drawn pretty much, it was quite simple. It was like, there was the German kind of European, continental European side of things. And then there was like the American side of things. So we were firmly in a kind of bit of a snobby, old, 
romantic way, not old romantic, new romantic, but we were like, <laughs> right. we were like, we were with the kind of German, slightly colder electro, you know, kind of coming from that angle. The term- That's of, what you, that's what you guys identified yes, as, is that what you mean? Yes, exactly. And then, right. and then I think it was the only time the electro clash term, it was more of like when the American- New York, Brooklyn thing kind of jump started with Fisher Spooner and all that. And then the English typically who always want, you know, a nice big juicy headline, you know, the, the English got, I mean, but in fairness, England was amazing. I mean, it was really, really supportive of everything, but they also got really into that, you know, the, the, the makeup side of it and the, you know, and then they had all those bands, the English thing got, they got really into the electro clash side of it. But right. no, we just thought, because I think also too, there was a difference in the time. There were people that came from more of a techno background. And then there were the people that were coming out from a bit more of a punk uh, background. So we were more, well, me, me and my friends are more coming. We were looking to combine kind of techno with 80s stuff, not so much uh, the, the, the punk side of it. But Yeah, I think that's um, the kind of, plurality there is kind of part of what made it interesting and that's what you, you talked about that with with errol as well because i mean he came from uh, you discussed in that conversation came from a more sort of i guess indie ish yeah. sort of exactly place yeah but the combination of those those different things really made it like you know interesting in a way which i didn't quite appreciate actually at the time i mean i was mm. I spent my early 20s uh, stood in a room once a month listening to 20 guys play proto dubstep records. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, that's... I, I, which, I completely, I completely missed dubstep. Like, I, I, I just, I mean... It, almost everyone did, frankly. Like, the vast majority of people that say they went to forward did not go to forward. Oh, I didn't even know what forward was. So what years, I mean, what are really the years of dubstep? What, what's the origin year... Well, well, Forward started in 2001, oh, it, but it was still Garage then. See, so I, it was, I, never, Forward started. I never even knew what Garage was. Because I have, oh, here's a confession. For me, I always thought of Garage like, I didn't know about like UK Garage. I always thought of Garage like, uh, kind of like Deep House. Like, I don't know why in my mind. Well, that was the thing. I mean, like, I thought like of UK from, Garage started as. I thought of it from gone. Paradise Garage. And then I remember the, then I remember guys like, all those DJs like Graham Park and stuff like that. That's what I thought of as like, I guess, UK house. And then I never like challenged my beliefs. Like I just went on, I just went on with this like crazy outdated idea what the word was. And then I guess years later, I was like, whoa, that, that's nothing like what I thought it was. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. <laughs> I mean, the development of, of UK Garage is pretty interesting because, I mean, it, it really started off as like room two at Jungle Raves. Mm. And it was, you know, London DJs playing US stuff, but pitch way up okay. to like, you know, one one thirty or whatever. Um, and then obviously started making their own tunes and like, you know, people like Tough Jam and, you know, all the rest of it, you know, and it, and it just got to the stage where so many people liked it that they just put Garage in the main room instead of, instead of Jungle, do you know what I mean? So, um, but that, I mean, that's, a, that's another story. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, and Dubstep came out of that. Dubstep, um, like I said, so, so Forward started in 2001 and, and, and Garage to a large extent, um, well, it, it it was it was gradually turning into into grime, and the MC aspect of it, which had always been there because of the association with with drum and bass and jungle, um, had sort of begun to kind of eat the music, um, and like there was a really high degree of violence that was going on at the at the parties, mm-hmm. and that attracted the attention of the police, and there was a very sort of stringent crackdown on big garage events which had, had turned into sort of those proto-grime events so like you know people like Wiley and, yeah. and, and Dizzy Rascal and, and all that you know, there was a rave called called Sidewinder at um, some enormous place um, outside London um, and it was you know there were it was, it was all kinds of shenanigans of the sort that you were just describing yeah, <laughs> in your own I'm sure experience I, what a felt were going down I mean I, I was I was at a, I remember I was at a um, a big garage night in about 2000 in 2001 or thereabouts, and uh, Alexandra Palace of all places, you know, the, the, the site of the first ever television broadcast. And someone just started shooting mm. on the dance floor yeah. and just, you know, just a you know, pandemonium. Like DJ EZ was playing and it was just like, my God, this is like, and that's not sustainable for a scene, obviously. No. So, but, 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 but <laughs> clearly, Dubstep though was, um, it was this night, well, Forward was like this, it was kind of like a dub garage sort of night. So it was, the whole thing was just like, you got to play dub plates and like, it's all got to be new and it's got to be super kind of, you know, every everything that gets played here has got to be cutting edge sort of thing. Um, and there was a kind of, there was the kind of breakbeat garage element to it. You know, DJ Zinc was doing oh, uh, yeah. the 138 Trek tune, which, which spawned a million imitators and all that stuff. But Dubstep Bun gradually came out of that, but, but um, you know, Fort Forward was once a month on a Thursday, and it, it, I don't know how it. Ca- ca- I guess I guess it just wasn't costing them any money, and they made enough money to just to, to you know, keep it going on a on a break even level. Because there was literally fifty guys, and they were all guys <laughs> that would turn up through. I mean, this is two thousand one, two thousand one through about two thousand and five. So like a long time, four years of just, and that was basically all I did in music was just turn up there once a month with a CD, swap CDs with like 20 other dudes, mm. like, you know, including like, you know, Digital Mystics and Scream and Banger and oh, all I those like, guys. I, I like Digital Mystics. I, I, that's, I, I bought those records. Yeah. I, I mean, there's quite, some amazing like music from back then. Absolutely. Yeah, but, it, but it really was just a case of like, you know, very, very like not much going on. And then suddenly in 2006, it blew up mm. and that was it. 
Yeah. And I guess dubstep, there's a lot of parallels with what happened with Electro, where it got that Americanized version. It got, then there was that kind of like the bro cartoon version. Right. Of, that's interesting. I'd never thought about it. Like well, that. that's so, what yeah, Americans, okay. they're, they're good at that. You know, they, they, <laughs> well, yeah. they know how to, they make like the Hollywood version. It's like a remake, you know? It's funny because actually yeah. I, I, I had never thought about it, but I guess dubstep as you just described it or with that scene, I, I mean, it, cult, the music is different, but I guess the culture of it is very much like what I experienced with drum and bass in the early nineties. You know, it was, I'm sure it was really, really kind of the same, that same, what I always loved about those scenes. And it's a very UK thing. I just loved the I still do. I love the emphasis on like competition. You know, I love that idea of like, it's really like I got a tune that no one else has and everyone notices. And I, I really, I love that. I talked about that a lot with Benji B, you know, just like that. It's, it's something, I guess it comes also from like dub culture and, and yeah, dance it's, it's hall stop play culture. culture and, basically you gotta, you gotta get the, you gotta get the tune. You gotta take it down and get it cut. And like, you know, you're only one of, you know, a few people have got it. And if you're, you know, if you're really lucky, you'll have your own personalized copy of it, you yeah. know, with a little I, I jingle. That. I mean, I love, a, I love that. Yeah. I love it. And also too, I, I like it. I think there's an honesty to that level of competition. Whereas I, I think, I don't know, sometimes when I think of like dance music going to like the, you know, like the kind of. I don't know what, like big Biza, cheesy Euro emotion, you know, these like, just these like vapid, empty scenes where it's like, there's no, even competition isn't really a thing because it's too, it like interferes with the vibe, you know, which I don't know, that drives me crazy. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if I articulated that properly. I made a dub plate. I want, of, there was a dub, gone. sorry, my first, uh, the day. So after I made sunglasses at night, um, I had a friend with a, a cutting, a, a lathe. And when DJ Hell came to Montreal, we made, uh, we made dub plates, a dub plate of sunglasses night for me and a dub plate for him. And that's what he went back to Germany with. And I think he played it at love parade. And so the, the first, they were actual plates for sunglasses. Oh, before it was, before it was signed. Yeah. yeah before mean? it was signed, we had, we had, yeah, we, yeah, we had, yeah. we had, pla okay. we had plates made. Nice. Mm. That's yeah. That's that's the, that's the that's the real shit, right there. I wonder to what extent. I mean, this has just occurred to me. I wonder what to what extent, like the like Detroit techno scene had had an whether it had an element of that or not. That kind of you know healthy competition element the de to it. I'm not the what the Detroit scene. Yeah, the early Detroit scene. Yeah. yeah. Do you, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think my, my, I don't know, but cool. but I do know that like when I was just, just starting out as like, when I was a kid, my exposure to like the old school DJs, like, and they were very, they were all like that. You know, they would stickers on their labels. They would marker things up. They were, there was a lot more, uh, there was a lot. You mean to stop, stop people telling what, yes, yeah, be, yes. being able to tell what they were playing. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, I think, I just think that was, I, I the, that was just part of DJ culture. You had to be much more competitive because that's all you had. You know, you just, it was just your box of records. You know, you didn't, I think it was really, I think it, it changed later on the kind of the incentivization to share everything is, is more recent, I think. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's something that I, struggle to get my head around even now, you know, for having, sure. having to put your track list up everywhere. I hate it. Like, I hate know, it. Making, I struggle to. It's a different. It's a different mindset, isn't it? I don't. I, I don't know where it came. I where it came from. I struggle like, to share in general. It's <laughs> <laughs> something I'm working on in life. Um, well, I think it came from. I think it's just like I think it's like everything else. The macro thing. It just it started with. 
you know, it starts when it starts when someone's like, Hey, you know, put your chart on Beatport and people will click those and buy those tracks. And, you know, it's, it starts right. when there's like a, some kind of, when it's more valuable to, to share than it is to hoard, you know, once that flips. How many plays are on your SoundCloud? Mix? Exactly. Yeah. Like, again, get more plays by putting but again, your track list up. Again, but yeah, but exa- this comes back to what I was saying about the danger of, of the numbers creeping in, which is when something's gray area, when you don't quite know, uh, you act very differently. Once you start to know, once someone says, hey, because you put that chart up, you've now sold X more or whatever, well then, you know, now you know. Well, it's Pandora's box, right? Yes. It's like, it's impossible to put the genie back in the bottle. That's just to use a double metaphor. But yeah, I mean, see a double cliche even. Put like, like four four of those together in the same sentence. <laughs> it's not <laughs> easy to do. <laughs> um, any, anyway, I wanted to talk about... Um, well, one of the one of the themes that I've been discuss, uh, exploring in this podcast series that I've been doing um, concerns the album format and the degree to which it endures and whether it has value and whether it's worth preserving in any kind of a way. So, you're you're a occasional releaser of albums. Mm. You've you've released three since. I mean, yeah. art, you know, artist artist original albums. I mean, yeah, three as opposed to mix albums, which are definitely not the same thing. So. Yeah, th- three in the last ones in in, in twenty sixteen. So, can you tell me a little bit about a little bit about your relationship with the format generally and how you how you how you see it? Yeah, well, um, I love albums. I mean, simply put, I just I, I, I love them, and I think um, I don't know for whatever reason. I guess because I grew up with well, I grew up with twelve inches too, actually. But I don't know. For me, in my head, an album is like. Uh, an era in your life as an artist. There's something about it, mostly psychological, that you like, it's your statement. You're drawing a line under one period of your life or your music or whatever. And I don't know, it, it just, for me, there's like an importance to it personally. It just seems more serious and it seems more, mm, it always seems like a big deal for me in a nice way. Um, and I don't know, I, I love them. I, it's always kind of the goal for me is like, okay, I put albums in a different category than everything else, even even though that's probably mostly symbolic, you know. But so, what were the what were the important albums to you growing up? Because I mean, everyone's got one or two, right? Yeah, they just kind of connect and yeah, stay with you. Um, well, in the context of like for the question you're asking, I think albums that that made me think the way I ended up thinking about my own career. I think I don't know why the one that jumps to mind is always Nine Inch Nails, uh, Pretty Hate Machine, because Oh, right. Okay. I thought you were going to say that one's probable, but like, I guess that was, that's a bit later. Yeah. Right? So. Yeah. Well, Pretty Hate Machine was, was I think it's 89. Um, yeah. And I remember, I mean, obviously it's a record I loved. I also, I've, it, I remember just, it was one of the first things where I was like, in a weird way, I felt like it was like achievable. I, I could kind of hear the way the guy was singing Trent Reznor and his types of writing, but it was also very percussive. It wasn't clubby, but I don't know. I just started to think of it in terms of maybe making my own music and and the whole package of it. Just, just it was something that I really loved. I mean, before that, Violator by Depeche Mode was a huge one. <clears throat> right. Um, yeah. Trying to think. Yeah, I mean, Aphex Twin selected Ambient Works, but that's that's just more for listening pleasure. I, I never. Yeah, I don't know what are. When I was younger, though, yeah, Violator was a big one. Oh, and Public Enemy, It Takes a Nation of Millions was a big one. I mean, I listened to that record thousands of times. And 
Yeah, those were some big ones for me. So with your first record in 2006? I think I so, yeah, I think so, yeah. Like this was, so coming out of, so so you've, you know, as you described, you had the big breakthrough with the mix CD, mm-hmm. then, the, then the hit single. Yeah. But it took another. But it took another five years to <laughs> to release a, yeah. a record. So like, so so so. Were you think? Were you always thinking in those terms about about the concept of doing an album? Were you thinking like, so when I do this, this has got to be a fucking big thing, or was it just a case of just it, it came together at a certain point more um, um, accidentally? Yeah, I mean, I always sometimes it looks like I have a plan or whatever, but. <laughs> oh, it, it always looks like you have a plan, man. Seriously. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it always, well, you know, a lot of the time other people's lives seem like that or after, you know, or when it's all laid out and you look back at it, you, you create some storyline. Okay. But simply what happened was I have always been, and I still am, I have always been torn in a few different directions. There's like, there's wanting to be an artist I guess in, in a more general sense, that's like an album artist, a visual artist, just an artist, just a, a, with an identity. And then, and then on the other hand, there's kind of DJ world. And, and the fact that I did legitimately always want to be a DJ, love DJing, feel comfortable as a DJ. And it's probably, or it was what I was really good at for a long time. So those two things for me are very different. And I never really, um, by my own admission, I don't think I ever really found a perfect middle ground. There were times where, so the reason I say that is after Song Us is a Night, I was just so happy to be able to DJ internationally. You know, I was just so, so it was what I had wanted for so long. And I was so happy and proud and excited that for years it was just like, oh yeah, I'm there. I'll DJ after party. I'm there. I'll DJ getting to see the world, getting to travel, getting to meet people you know, I was thrilled. And in that whole period, so I was doing a lot of remixes, which was new to me and I loved. And what was important probably for me, the most important record was Pleasure from the Bass because Pleasure from the Bass was, I think, 2004 or 2003. But but that's on the album, right? It is on the album, but but it was a standalone single. But the thing that was important was, so Sunglasses Night was a cover version. So obviously in my head, and I'm sure in a lot of others, you're like, okay, you're kind of cheating in a way, you know, it's not, you didn't write it. You didn't. So yeah. in my own head, I was like, okay, could I make a good, could I actually make, am I good enough to make a real, a great, a great dance record, you know? And so when I made Pleasure from the Bass for, and then that record really worked. And for me, that was like, okay, I, I actually, I'm, I'm somebody, you know, this is, this is legit. So I think it, was that, sorry, if I can no just problem. jump in there. Was that, was that the first time that you'd written lyrics? Yes. I mean, I had done. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, gonna I'm gonna come back to this. I had done this is, a B your, side. Your, your writing is something that I wanna, I wanna explore. But like, that's an interesting. I had thing. done, I had done a B side for Sunglasses at Night that I don't think anyone really knows about, and I'm totally fine with that because it's some serious. What's that called? <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs> it's, it's like some serious high school poetry. It's like pretty dodgy. Come on, let's have, let's it's have, called, let's have a title. What, it's called it? Sweet Sedation. Okay, and I don't, and it's okay. Uh, okay. I mean, it's... We've all got to start somewhere, man. It, it, We've all got to start you somewhere. know what? It should be like, it's like one of those, you know, like that label Dark Entries? You know when Dark Entries finds like some yep. forgotten 80s <laughs> basement French romantic record and you're, it's got a bit of that. Yeah. It's like, whatever. It's, I was, it, it was almost, it, it's the kind of thing that later on when I was writing, like 
when I do those joke things, like, uh, I did that fake interview. I don't know if you ever saw that. Like when I would write for my character later on, it's the kind of thing I would have done as a satire of Electro. You know, it's like with what, what was the fake? What was the fake interview? Do do I, I did. A, I recorded to? a big fake interview for promotion for one of my records. It was the one where I'm sitting around the desk, just taking the piss out of everything. You never saw that one? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, anyway. no, I, I do, I do. Anyway. I'm surprised I didn't come across that today, actually. But like, yeah, yeah. Anyway, that, that, that does. Um, yeah. So, so. Uh, but, yeah. in, but in character, right? Yeah, and, in character. And, and yeah. The, the the construction of this <laughs> of this character is something that I, I, we're going to get into this later. Yeah, but like, sure. anyway, carry on on the subject the subject of albums. Let's let's continue on that for, for the. Well, yeah. So time. pleasure from the base was basically the first time I wrote and really made something fully original, and I was madly in love with it. Um, and you probably know a lot of the time the best records you make are like we have a very clear destination. So it was like, there was a nightclub in Berlin called Cookies, which was like, I've, yeah, and cookies. Oh, you know, so at the time it was like really, really great. You know, it was just like, it was everything I ever wanted in a party. It wasn't, it was like, you know, you get paid 300 bucks or whatever, but it was like slamming. And I made this record for that. I wanted kind of like a vocal acid house record, but, but me instead of Adonis or whatever, you know, so Anyway, I was so happy with that record. And so after that record, then I was like, okay, I can do this and I can make an album. And, but also too, I blame a little bit, you know, what was weird is things were so like unprofessional back then in a way that, so I had like a top 20 kind of global hit with Song Us as a Night and nobody, DJ Hell, nobody ever was like, hey, let's run with it. Let, let's make an album, you know? Whereas it seems inconceivable now, now somebody, some manager, somebody would be like, okay, this is how we're going to do it, you know? But I never, it was all- Well, that's the numbers thing coming back, right? Yeah. You know, someone's going to be pouring I, over I, those figures. I guess that's it. And there was nobody pouring over any figures, including me. And, and I'm, I'm kind of thankful for it. So by the time the record, I think Sangas is a it was a pleasure from the base that started that process. And those three years, those kind of quote unquote lost years, I was really having fun traveling and, and, and DJing a lot and stuff. Yeah. Doing the thing, man. It's fun. I mean, it's amazing when you get the opportunity to do it. I mean, I had it you know, myself and it's just when it, when it happens, oh, it's, like the best. You're not, it's the best. You're not, you're not spending much time in the studio when, when that shit's going down. No. And, and, and also too, you know, I'm sure all of us, everybody, I'm sure has the same version. You spend, you spend years dreaming about it. You know, oh, what would I play if I got the chance? Or, oh, if only they could hear me play, or I'm, I'm just as good. Or, you know, you have all your bedroom things are going on. <clears throat> Even if you have a local career, you know, you just have all these. And then one day, if you're lucky, and there's a lot of luck, you get that ticket in and it's like, whoa, you know, okay. I'm I'm doing this now, and it was a really good feeling. Yeah, and you have to do it, man. You have to you have to just get get involved with it if you have the opportunity. Yeah, and of course too, and that's also an era where there's no ambivalence. You know, it's not like it's not like now where it's all whatever philosophical and you're blah blah so much talking. And, you know, <laughs> it's not like it wasn't like that. There was no, I wasn't. There was no philosophizing. It was like, yes, I'll be there. I'm staying there all night, and I'm playing the best records, and we're gonna have fun. You know. <laughs> Okay, so so, and then, but then with the, with the album, you convinced yourself you were capable of doing it. Yeah. So what? So what was the thing that made it actually come to fruition? Um, well, a very very important thing. So, I I almost never make music alone. So I'm not. I, I'm very very collaborative, and there's a few key people at different stages in my life that really deserve, first of all, shitload of credit, and also you know they kind of made it possible. So. 
in that era, my friend Jesper, Jesper Dahlback, who's a Swedish techno producer, and we were we were making almost everything together. We 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 had a real real system going and we did pleasure from the bass together and we were making a lot of records together and and that was super important and then i met uh i met dave and steph uh too many djs and soul wax and we became incredibly close incredibly good friends and they started producing a lot of music with me as for me with me as well and that was yep. huge because i've talked i've spoken about this before you know in my head i kind of had like club music and like, quote unquote, real music, you know, they, they were, they were slightly different in my head. There was, you know, there was a, you know, there was an acid house record and then there was a Depeche Mode record. And, and so a, a tune and a song, a tune and a song. Right? Is that exactly. how, that's how I kind of, yes, think of it. exactly. Exactly. And obviously that's kind of simplistic and whatever it's, 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 but, but the point is I did see it a bit like that. And in my head, certain people that I started to work with and, and, too many DJs were the example. They started to make me feel like, okay, wait a second. You could make that transition. You could start making um, closer to what you imagine to be real music, songs, choruses, singing. Um, and I have no idea really, by the way, the only reason I started, like when I put my voice on a record, it literally was because I couldn't do anything else. I mean, like that was at the beginning, that was the reason. Sunglasses at night, I couldn't. You mean you mean te- you mean technically you couldn't I had no contribute skills. to a record without nothing. Like, yeah, yeah, nothing, okay. nothing. I mean, wow. so did you did you did you do anything when you were? Did you learn? Did you learn any instruments or anything like that? No. Did you have any kind of musical grounding? Nothing at all. No, nothing at all. Wow. Zero. Okay, that's interesting. Um, I I I was I was speaking to Mark Ronson about this, and it, you know, and Diplo too. There's a similarity. You know, a lot of us, it's pure at the at the origin. It's just DJ mentality. So what you you are picking out samples. You, you're like, oh, but your language is only like the language of a DJ. You're like, oh, I'd like it to sound like this or, or let's copy yeah. this break. But in terms of actual ability to play or technical ability, programming on a sampler, all that shit, I was hopeless. Not only hopeless, but um, I didn't even like it. I, was, I would get annoyed really quickly. And uh, right. like I, I made attempts. I did the standard shit. Like I remember... Early '90s, I bought a sampler. I bought a Kurzweil K2000. I tried. I had, you know, I, I went through the Akai years. Like I tried, and I hated it. I always hated it. I'd get so frustrated. I mean, if you don't love it, then you can't do it. Basically, it becomes. It's like when you. I, I, the best, the best thing that I heard, well, the best simile um, that I think I've ever heard of it is it's like a video game. And if you don't like the video game, then you you're not going to do it yeah you know exactly but if you do like it it's like playing street fighter if you like street fighter then you will just play it and play it and play it. no i never liked it and <laughs> and then yeah, and then enough. and then also and then and then and then when you find yourself in a room with someone that obviously does and you see the difference and you see the fluency you're like what the fuck am i like why why even bother you know like why and right. and but i but i have no i never had in the very beginning, I had a bit of an insecurity about it. You know, I was like, and also in the techno world, you know, you're kind of, there's this idea that you're supposed to be this like one man machine that, that, that can just do it. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know? That's the whole thing. And I, you know, I, 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 to my slight embarrassment, like maintain a bit of that mentality now, but I, I can just step back from it and see that it's bullshit because it is bullshit. Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on what you're making. Uh, but uh, anyway, for me, but the whatever insecurity that dissolved pretty quickly when I realized that, like, you know, what I'm best at is 
basically I have these spurts in studio. It'll, it'll happen. It all happened really, really fast. It's almost like madness where like I'm, and it all just comes quickly. It'll be like, oh my God, my God, my God, we gotta, we gotta, you know, this acid line, we have to sample this. It's gotta be way, way slower. And these are the words. And then there's gonna be a, a, a whistle and a cowbell. And it's gonna break down to this acapella. And it all happens really, really quickly. And whoever I'm with is a bit like, okay, sure, whatever. <laughs> but, but then that's it. And you realize like, that is what you have to contribute, you know? And, and, and you, you move on anyway. So yeah, so I wanted to make gone. real music. I had that in my head. I wanted to be make a, a quote unquote real album with me on the cover, with with some songs. I wanted to try to dig a dig and put a little bit of emotion into it. And uh, yeah, that was my. Idea I mean, going going back to this. Sorry, artist. going right. I mean, going back to this this element of of confidence, which you you know clearly have lots of you know as 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 evidenced by you know starting a record shop and starting a rave and starting a fucking venue like putting your voice Mm. on a on a track takes some serious balls like that's that's really like putting it out there yeah like more than either more than any of those three previous things that i mentioned yeah like i did was that was that a bump in the road at yeah. all? Was yeah. it, is it just like the... Yes, gone, yes. Gone. I mean, look, it's easy for me now. Like now I will get into a studio with someone I, I barely know and I will get on my notebook and write some stupid shit and, and kind of sing it or say it or whatever and, and play it for the public. And I'm kind of okay with that. Like it's like, yeah, yeah sure, whatever. That's what I do, you know. And, but it was not always like that. I, I You know, there was a lot of steps... Well, the first time, like, so like I said, Sunglasses at Night started. The idea with Sunglasses at Night was I had actually heard, I never in a million years thought of myself as a singer. I never even wanted to be a singer. I didn't, I had no fantasies. Like I wanted to be either a DJ or maybe behind the scenes or, or like in a band or other things, but I didn't think of myself as a lead singer. Sunglasses at Night, I had heard Miss Kitten and the Hacker, uh, they did Sweet Dreams. They did a cover of the Eurythmics track. And I had heard it and I thought it was so amazing. Um, and around the same time I was into Marilyn Manson and he had also done a cover of Sweet Dreams. And I was just like, I told my friend Yori, I'm like, well, why don't we do a cover version, you know? And he's like, okay, well, you're going to have to sing it. I was like, oh shit, okay. And <laughs> right. the first time we made sunglasses at night and I owned, my record store was a block away from my loft where, where I lived. And we went over after and we played it on the PA system in the record store. And I was horrified. Like, you, you know, when <laughs> right. you first hear your, your voice on like an answering machine or something, you're like, <laughs> yeah, it was like that. Absolutely. It was like that times a thousand. I was like sweating. I was so uncomfortable. I did not think it sounded cool at all. Like not even secretly, I wasn't like, oh yeah, yeah, I got it. No. And, uh, and then it just gradually, I don't know, there, there were steps along the way and you, you know, I still now there's moments where the delivery. Sorry, what, can I, yeah, can sure, I just sure. clarify that what you've just said? Like, was that, was that the, was that the final version of Sunglasses yes, at Night yes. that, that you were listening to? Yeah. Wow. So, so getting... But well, you can I mean, listen to it now. Have, I mean, it's not the... exactly like, it's not like it was done on like an SSL board at like, at a... No, but, but, <laughs> but releasing it, yeah. it, it must have been, it must have been a, like a mental hurdle to get over, like even putting it out there, right? Mm, no, I've never had that problem. That is a problem right. I have never had. I have a lot of friends. I have never, uh, well, Sunglasses were a little different. It was the first time. 
But, well, the thing about Sangas is important is, first of all, I got to give a lot of credit to Yori Halkonen. He was really into it and felt very, very sure about it. And then DJ Hell immediately was like, this is the best record ever, like all. <laughs> so, you know, so I was like, I had friends who were confident in it. But Sangas tonight, this I've talked about before, I'll just say quickly. So it was like the greatest lesson in the world because if you make, you make I made my first record, it took an hour. I made it with a friend. We put it out. The guy who owned the label loved it, did not ask for it to be remixed, didn't ask for it to be edited. It was eight minutes long. It was, it was pretty ghetto sounding. And then it's a huge hit. So the lesson I learned, it's like, it's like you get the best reinforcement in the world. The reinforcement is do shit fast, do shit ghetto, do shit that you, you're in your own way and it can succeed. So it was like a huge... It was very, very uh, empowering in that way. So, like later on, yeah, it's about it's about capturing the magic. Exactly, isn't it? making yes. a record. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to tick any particular box for a record to be great. No, and and it's and that's like a it's a bit of a, a cliche that we all use, but like I believe it a thousand percent. I've been in that position so many times. Like a record, like like that record Bugatti that was probably my, my biggest, one of my biggest records after it was the exact same thing. I mean, it was, it was a ludicrous record. Loads of people laughed at it. thought it was stupid. I was like, Man, I was, I was listening to that today and it's a very strange track. It, like it's, it's, it's it does totally. not sound like a hit tune. It's quite amazing. Like, I mean, it's, it's, it sounds great, but fucking hell, man, well, like just, you would not. Yeah. It's just, there's four things happening and, and, but, but again, it was like, that was the kind of thing. Yeah. I think, but also it's like confidence, but also too, I'm like, I don't know when exactly it happened. Like I was probably always like this, but like, I don't know. I, I was always quite obsessed with like, I kind of just always like, I never wanted to like blend in, you know, like I never wanted to be part of like a scene or I was always quite happy to be like different. You know, I, I kind of value it for myself. So I think the voice thing, it, it became like, it wasn't that I liked my voice or do like my voice that much. And I always wished, I, I still wish I could really, really sing. Like I would be so cool, but, but I guess it was more like your fingerprint. You know, I just started to value more the fact like whatever I'm going to do, my words and my voice are going to be really, really, really hard to copy. You know, it, it's just like, that's who I am. So it's a good place to start on a track, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you um, accomplished that particular yeah uh, I think so <laughs> but also too you know how it is but you also and and you know as a producer I mean everybody a friend of mine told me once you know you, you make the music that you can make you know it's not always what you and you know if I if I were like Aphex Twin well fuck I'd, I'd probably be making music like Aphex Twin you know as a first choice or, <laughs> right. or I you know you make the stuff that you my skill set lends itself to to some quite st stripped down kind of acidic party records with a with a with a catchphrase you know yeah I mean you develop a style over time and it becomes something that you um re you know refine I guess I think and, and that's true for for mo not for everyone but for, for the vast majority of people who who do this kind of stuff so um I just let's just finish up talking about albums yeah, generally because we've got a little bit in the weeds like so um so pleasure from the bass was like what brought the essentially what brought that album together mm. um like there's a there's another track on there called you're gonna want me oh yeah which that was a big been, one 
Yeah, I wish I listened to that today for the first time in ages, which is which is that's quite a good record well. that one. It stands up quite well that one. Like it still sounds it's pretty good. It's a good, good album mm. generally. Like, were you happy with it when it was done? Like, were you super bullish or I mean, yes. is, is this a confident Tiger guy? Just like no, I think <laughs> okay, I, right, no, yeah. I, I think. But <laughs> I'm not. Trust me, I'm 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 not like that all the time. I'm quite honest with my stuff. I think, and there's lots of things I've done that I don't like. And but um, that record, I, I think, is a really good record. When I when I think back, when I listen back, well, I don't. But when I check it out now, um, I'm really really proud of that record. And I think. More than anything else, I think the record showed like a lot of character. And and when I, considering where I was and how long ago it was, yeah, I think it was an interesting record. I think if I were a music buyer and I picked that record up, I'd be like, okay, who is this guy? There's a lot of, there were a lot of weird ideas. Um, and also there's some songs in there I was quite proud of. There was a song like called Three Weeks, which I wrote right after my mother passed away. And it's still yeah. one of the only times where I, got a little bit close to the singer songwriter dream of actually showing your emotions, you know, in a, in a, which is a nice feeling because it's, that's not Bugatti, you know, that's actually, and you're going to want me was you a mean, good as, record. As, as opposed, as opposed to the sort of constructed yeah. character. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Actually being personal. Yeah. Because like everything, it's not, um, yeah, being personal. Cause I still think that's, I still think that's the ultimate, you know, it's still like, and in house music and in dance music and in disco, that's still the coolest when you still, for me, the Holy grail is something like small town boy or, uh, right. you know, it's yeah. where, it's where it, it takes all the boxes. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a celebratory dance record, but there's also some pain in there and some feeling. And, and I just like a lot of other people, it's easy to shy away from that. Um, anyway, separate, separate topic. I was happy with the record and I loved the, I loved the title sex or, which I, I, the whole thing, I really, really like it. And right. And your, your, um, your current, uh, Patreon thing is club, club sex or, yeah, 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 yeah. And just, just to, just to prove to you, I'm not some like, some like twisted egomaniac who thinks everything he does is amazing. Like my, <laughs> my third album, no fantasy required. I, I really, I'm not so into it. You know, I, I think there were a lot of, a lot of things that were not, where it didn't hit the mark, where it was not a hundred percent truthful, where it was, you know, so you do get it wrong sometimes as well, or sometimes your, your ideas thin out a little bit, or there's not enough meat on the bone or, you know, th that happens as well. Okay. Let's, let's, let's dig into that. If you, if you don't mind. <laughs> I don't, I don't mind at <laughs> all. Sounds... I'm not precious about anything. I really, I'm ready to, I don't care. I'm fine. Okay, so so what? So just we'll talk a little bit about how the record came together first. Like, what what was the um was it was it different to the previous two in any way, or was it a similar sort of process? Um, yeah, it was a little bit different. So the first, the second album, Chow, which I also love, was mostly done with the. Uh, uh, I did some tracks with Gonzalez, which was a new writing partner, and then it was mostly again too many DJs who produced it. I think that's also a great record. Um, but the third one, yeah, there, I did a lot of it with Matthew Deere and I did some of it with this guy Clarion in Montreal. And I don't know, if, if I have to single it out, it's just like, I just wasn't as good, I guess. But also something that bothered me about that record was the artwork bothered me a little bit because it was a little bit of a cop-out. It was just like, okay, I'm going to try to look pretty again. You know, it, it was like, <laughs> but that's not, there's a point where that becomes kind of stupid and a bit, I don't know. It, it just, it just, it, that, that kind of bothered me a little bit. It was just, you, no, you know what it is? Sorry. This is what it is. 
it's when you know how good it feels to have a real vision, you really recognize the absence of a vision. It's like being right. in love. It's like when you know how good it feels, when you know how right it feels, and, you, and if you're honest with yourself, you also know when it's not quite there. And there was, the vision wasn't quite there. Also the title bothers me because the title, I realized this too late. The title was originally the title of a song. And I, I actually love that song. The song, No Fantasy Required, I love on the album. But then I kind of lazily, it was like, okay, that's gonna be the title of the album, but it's not true. And, and it bothered me because I only figured out that later that <clears throat> fantasy is required. So it was like kind of like a lie. Like it was, it was a false arrogance. The idea with the line, sorry if I'm going too into this, but. No, no, this is good. I, I called Carry it on. no fantasy required. The idea was that like you're so hot that like your lover or whatever, like would never have to fantasize. Right. Like you, like you, you are so amazing that you, you nullify fantasy in the eyes of whoever you're, whatever you're, you're just, that's how awesome you are. But it's, I mean, this is, this is in some ways a sort of logical conclusion to confidence ego, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it's not, it's fake. That's the point. It's, it's, it's. And that's it's, why, that's why it's not satisfying for you. No, right? exactly. Because it's, because it's not, you know what it was? It was, now we're getting a little shrinky, but it's like, you have to be careful when, when the character becomes a parody and when you're, and if you're not showing any vulnerability, it just gets boring. Right. I mean, that's boring for people. At the end of the day, it's like, if you're putting on a character like, oh, ha ha, I'm all, I've got it all sorted out and, and I'm, you, you cease to be relatable and it's just kind of plastic. Yeah. There has, there has to be a kind of scratch on the surface. Yes. Otherwise it's, otherwise it's, yeah, as you yeah. said, it's, people can't, people can't put it in their, in, in, in their own context. Yeah. They, and it, and it has to be, yeah. And it has to be a little bit even goofy, even a little bit silly in a nice way, you know, and a lot of my music did have that. And that, that album started to flirt with, I don't know, it was just, it was just whatever. Those are the things that bugged me about it. And also too, I think it was missing a, a hit. Like it was one hit short because Bugatti was a really good record, but everyone had already heard it. And anyway, whatever, not, right. not, not the end of the world, but just, those are insights obviously into how we all think about our own stuff and, and whatever. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's plenty of my work, which I view <laughs> in a very dim light to be, <laughs> to be honest. But yeah. um, I mean, like, this is, this is all, kind of feeds into the last thing that I wanted to talk about, which was, um, which, which is this kind of character, mm. which you have lived to an extent in, in public. I yeah. mean, like there are, um, like it, it, it's not like you do break it, but it's definitely there. Yeah. Um, sort of like it, it sort of bubbling under. Um, and a lot of it is, is expressed through words, I've I've kind of like observed and which is the reason why I wanted I asked about lyrics but it's actually um I, I think like it's, it was well, it's, it's definitely something of uh, an area of extreme talent that you have I think like the the ability to um, the ability to convey a message in a very concise kind of a way yeah. um, thank you by a, the way <laughs> no 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 it, it 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 is um it's something that I've yeah reflected upon um so I mean, I mean, how do you how do you react to that for, for a start? And 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 then, like, to what extent did you consciously build this character up? Like, what? Um, yeah, tell tell me about it. Um, well, I mean, the character, or hmm, well, so the character is like, I guess, 
you know, it's an exaggeration. It's not a total fabrication. So it's like when it came to like record covers and videos and, and all that stuff, I guess for the public, I guess it was like, yeah, it was kind of like who I, who I kind of wanted to be, you know, it was a version of myself that I thought, you know, kind of looked cool and, and did the right things and stuff. And I, I never, I don't think I really thought about it more than that. It was a little bit like if you get invited to the ball, to the big party, well, you got to put on your best outfit, you know? And that, It's that, super interesting that you use the word ball because um, <laughs> one, of, one of the... Uh, one of the like the most, the most striking things that I came across in my my research for this conversation, um, and it's it's not difficult to find, is your biography from two thousand and six, from around the time of the first album. It's just it's, it's before before it's it's kind of like building up to the first album. Like mm. the, the last line in it is um is talking about the impending release, um, and it's really um, well. I mean, it's there's more than a hint of Oscar Wilde. In yeah, this. that, that a, one went pretty crazy. There's definitely, I mean, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you you must have written that, right? Yeah, I wrote that with a friend of mine. We 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 had like a writing project together, and we we went pretty <laughs> I mean, crazy on that one. I, I would I would recommend the listener to um to dig out that that book. It's it's actually your RA biography like yeah that's a, that's still. yeah that's a good one but, that one's really out there <laughs> but i mean you genuinely i mean you might as well be like dorian gray or like you mm. know and um so and that, and that kind of like slightly aloof but very almost aristocratic thing mm. but but transported transported forward and in, in you know, via the 1980s into the 2000s is it's a, it's, it's, yeah. it's, but it's, per, but it's perfectly well, kind of realized and, and it's expressed in, in, through your lyrics as well as the, you know, as well as the visual aspect to it and obviously the, the music, but, but, but it, but it's hit me more than anything else through the words. So yeah. Yeah. Well, me. first, well, well, first of all, I'm, you know, being compared to Oscar Wilde doesn't happen all the time. So thank you. I, I, that's, that's probably the nicest thing anyone's going to say to me for a while. But, uh, I, well, the thing is that the, I think we grow up with our own like mythology, right? When you're, or I did, you know, when you're a kid, you, you take little snippets everywhere. You know, you, you got, there's, there's some, there's a, a poster of David Bowie and there's a song lyric and, you know, you, you, you just develop this idea of, of what you like, you know, what you think is cool and, and how you'd like to be where you fit into that, you know? And for me, the, that aloofness, it is real. It's like, it, it's kind of what I always I always liked that idea of that slightly removed character, you know, slightly unreachable and he kind of descends and makes his statement and goes back up to the hill or whatever, you know, or is now whether that's healthy or not, who knows, but that, that was kind of an aesthetic I always liked. And I think, I think it's probably from the eighties, you know, think people were kind of unreachable. Um, you didn't really know that much about them and there was a distance and, and they were kind of perfect in a weird way. And I definitely bought into that, you know, even though that's very different than the rave ethic and the DJ ethic. The funny thing is, is it's so different now, you know, it, it's, it's like, it's the opposite of what everyone seems to want now, you know, that, that well, that's mystery. What I was gonna and, say. and so it's, so it's a weird thing where you're a funny example. I, I often think about, but I've had to reconsider this all lately because this all gets quite personal too, because you, you, you know, anyway, but a funny example I've thought about lately is like, I grew up thinking that like the coolest thing in the world is to be like a James Bond villain or something. And like, you know, 
you're a bazillionaire and you have one of those, you live in one of those bases that comes out from the ocean and, and you don't, and you're, <laughs> right. un, and you're unreachable. I mean, that was the whole point. You would have a henchman that would, you know, he would pick up the phone or whatever. Then, then you have this modern idea where like, you know, you, you're Elon Musk or you're Kanye West or you, you've got everything in the world. You're Jeff Bezos, but like, you're still tweeting with, with people or you're still reaching out or you're still want encouragement or you still want reinforcement and it seems right in, in a way that actually is, to is me. like what's in, crazy about it is that it's 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 done in a way which actually certainly in the case of elon musk is actually quite genuine like like he really he, he doesn't have like a he likes he doesn't it. have like a he's, yeah, in, right. he's into it but so so for me i don't know maybe i'm going too far out there but for me it's like it it all seems so bizarre uh but and this is what COVID, this whole period of quite a lot of isolation has, and missing, missing shows and missing, it has taught me that actually um, that connection, that continued connection and maybe being a little bit less aloof is, is super important. It's quite critical and you have to be careful that character um, and that tendency towards that removed characterization it's a slippery slope uh to you know anyway i maybe i I don't know if i answered the question but do you do you think that um like chow came out in 2009 yeah no fancy required came out in 2016 what happened in between those you know two dates is the kind of like the the real emergence of this whole social media right but but the the emergence of like social media and that whole the, the like the pressure to be present in a way which you know was there before but like definitely was amplified to a, to yeah, a stressful extent so do you think but do you think that had a you know just in the context of you not you know not like losing your sense of vision a little bit do you think that was that had an effect do you think the you know the pressure to be you know this yeah you know the, the, go yeah on. i think so yeah well i never felt comfortable with the whole um I've just never felt super comfortable with it. I never really found, I mean, I have spurts, like I do like Twitter and there were points where I love Twitter because it's just words and you could make a joke and, but. Or not as we found out. Yeah, or not. But (laughs) so Twitter, I was always okay with Twitter. Instagram, I don't know. In general, I just never found a, I had friends who were just so good with it and felt loved it and just used it so well. And I, I never really, I never really found that zone. I also don't really like, I don't like having my picture taken. I don't really like, I don't know. I don't really like sharing stuff that much. I don't know. It's a tricky one. I think like a lot of people, I just never really hit my groove. Maybe it's like a generational thing. I don't really, it gives me a little bit of anxiety, the whole thing. And I, I, I guess. I mean, social media generally. Yeah. The whole, Is that what you meant by that? Yes. Yes. Yeah. The, the whole thing of like, let me give you an example. What doesn't give me anxiety you know, like Led Zeppelin doing a world tour for five months, then fucking off for five months and then going to a cabin for two months to make a record. Like that to me, I can get my head around that. It seems- That sounds good, doesn't it? Exactly. It just, it just, it's like you are, you are public at one moment, you are private at another moment, you go into a creative cocoon at another moment. It, it's like, I'm not saying it's better. It just, it's just something I can get my head around. And the other extreme of, of constantly- being in contact with and, and giving out this drip drip of yourself and your ideas. I'm not particularly good at it. And more importantly, it it drives me kind of crazy. I, I, for myself, I actually think like 
oh, I don't know, fuck, I go up and down. I mean, sometimes it's fun and whatever, but in general though, it, yeah. I, I find it, it's tough. It's, it's tough and I don't know, just speaking for myself, I don't know if it results in the best stuff. But I just want to say one thing about what you say about the words though, because... Yeah, no, I wanted to come back to yeah. that. I, don't want to go, I didn't want to get into the weeds on social media. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about yeah, um, social media the expression a, of yeah. your vision through, yeah, the, 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 the printed word as well, or the spoken word. Well, I'm really, I, yeah. I, I'm quite, I'm really, it's very, very nice to hear someone say that because, yeah, I, I, first of all, I talk too much in general. So like I talk too much in my real life. I talk too much in interviews. I talk and, and I find that oftentimes it was always like this when I was a kid too, when you, Talk is kind of cheap, you know, it's easy. I, I know that with my own podcast, but when you write something down, like for me, writing things down feels good. You know, it, it collects your thoughts in a different way. And whether it's writing a journal or trying to articulate something uh, for a press release or whatever. So I, I enjoy it. And I think it's like a nice, it's a nice experience. And when it came to writing words for songs, while I secretly wish I could write like Van Morrison or Morrissey or... I mean, guys like Leonard Cohen or Bob Dylan, I mean, to me, these, they're like the greatest geniuses ever, you know, the way... It, it's interesting that you, that you refer to Morrissey there because I think there is a little bit of a hint of Morrissey in your... Well, Morrissey's stuff. fucking incredible. Uh, he's just, he's so... I know whatever modern Morrissey's a nightmare and a political, whatever, I, I don't care about that. I'm saying the words, I mean... Oh yeah, nothing can take away those, no, those records. I am, I am the son and the heir to a shyness that is criminally vulgar. Like, I mean, just fuck, like, boom, mic drop, you know, forget it. And so I remember- And he wrote that when he was 21 or something. I mean, that's that's the fearlessness of youth, right? Right there. And he's in Manchester and he's with all these, like, he's this total queen and he's not admitting it. I mean, just just all the circumstances, everything, the the toughness and the bravery and and the talent, you know? Anyway, I romanticize that stuff and I wish I could, but I also have realized that- you know, my a talent, if it is a talent, is the thing of reducing um, reducing a message to to three or four key words and delivering it kind of rhythmically in a way that works as a dance song um, is 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 cool. And it's something. It's like a puzzle. It's not so easy to do. And I mean, it's extremely difficult to do. Yeah, I, I think. Like, yeah, like a good example for me, probably the gold standard is like music sounds better with you. Right. You know, I like you, I've gone into studio and I oftentimes think like, Jesus, that is, it's so but that was, perfect. Uh, my, understa- you know? my understanding of that is that it was a song and they chopped a, they chopped a line out of it. I might oh, be wrong about maybe. that, but I'm fairly sure that that's how that came together. It wasn't like, um, they didn't write it. The name of the, uh, <laughs> it's Benjamin Diamond or whatever it was. That's, it? Yeah. 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 That's, that's, uh, I actually really liked his, his album that he uh, released uh, around that time. Actually, that's kind of a cool or, thing, or that's, another, that's another story, but yeah. like, um, he was definitely a songwriter or is, is a, is a songwriter. Mm. Well, um, for whatever, I mean, I, I like to pretend that was Bengalter. Oh, no, 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 but, but, you're, but you're right in the sense, in the sense of the way it worked and the way it is, I mean, that's what makes that records just, you know, it's so emotive, you know, because mm. it is just a distillation of what you feel on the, on the, on the dance floor, you know, it's like, you know. Yeah, yeah but that's, 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 it, that's right? the, and that's the, I guess, musically, the, what's awesome about dance music is, uh, Sometimes dance music is like a poetic version of a song. So it's like, it's all the information of a song stripped down to, to a, a, a stripped down to deliver it to you in a way like that works 
when you're just dancing. So, you know, obviously there's like with all the repetition and not all the changes and, but I don't know, it's, it's, it's just, it's a really cool idea, especially like you and me, you know, we've spent so much time in clubs. You spent so much time on a dance floor, you know, what works. And so trying to get that, that narrative in there, uh, in a way that works in a dance track is awesome. And it's, it's, it's a nice thing to strive for. Also the Chicago guys were amazing at it. I mean, you know, Adonis, no way back, or, uh, obviously Frankie Knuckles and, uh, Sylvester and all those guys, like they just, I mean, they kind of wrote the book on it as well. I, I, I mean, do you, so I mean, to what extent do you see the lyrics and, and all that side of it as being, you know, part of the character? as it were. I, I, I realize I'm, I'm slightly making this character thing into a bit more. No, no, maybe it, it no, no, it's not. Mind, you're not, like, you're, you're not because no, there are times where you write and there are times when the writing and the, and the singing is directly possible because in studio you consciously created a character. So like that song Shoes, for example, Shoes, I don't know if you know that one. <laughs> yeah, but, but I know I listen to it today. It's, I actually fucking, it's, it's, it's highly amusing. But, yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good one. And, and Shoes, I was, that was completely, it was almost like writing a little story. I'm like, okay, this is the type of person I am. This is the car I drive. This is the kind of girl I'm after. This is the environment. And and that enabled it to actually happen. I mean, that was a, that was a very, very definite, definite, uh, strategy in that case. Yeah. So it is, so it is a big thing for you. I think so. Sometimes it's a way to, I think it is for a lot of people, you know, sometimes it's a way to, it's a little bit of a disguise that makes it, it's a little bit of a hack to, to be able to, maybe it's a way to, well, it's definitely easier to put yourself out there if you tell yourself, oh, I was a bit in character, you know, <laughs> it's yeah, like, I mean, I think we all, we all do it to a certain extent. I mean, even, even the way we dress, you know, the, all these, you know, these guys, these DJs you see with their warlock outfits and their rings <laughs> and their giant V-neck black tee. It's all, you know, it's, it's so that when they leave the hotel room, they're not, they're not quite themselves. They're, they're oh yeah, totally. It's like your superhero costume. They're extra, you know, they're, they're, they're them extra and, and yeah. But, but, but writing, but by, by my own admission though, I think also too, I'm a bit lazy because there are also times, I mean, lazy in a good way. So like a track, like let's go dancing, you know, I could have, I could have written more and I'm like, you know what? Oh, but would have been completely unnecessary. Yeah, exactly. But that's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it depends what you're doing. Actually, let's go dancing is a pretty, that's a pretty funny example because that one is really, it's really like, I was like, okay, what is the bare minimum you can <laughs> to get this message across. Like it's so, but with all, with those ones, with the ones where it's like a phrase or whatever, I really do battle test it in, in the sense that it's really like they exist on this razor thin line. They're, they're so close to stupid and, and ridiculous. You know, they're, they're very, they, but, and yet they're not, you know, and, and usually that you can just tell by people's reaction, you know? Yeah. Like it, it's very, very, very close. So, and I know some people hear the stuff and they're like, ha, 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 wow, you're so funny or that's so stupid, but it's never meant to be funny. It's never, ever, there's no comedy in that. It's never meant to be a punchline or anything like that. It, it, it's really not. That's interesting. That's really interesting. So the last, the last question is, um, sure. when are you going to write the book, man? So I, <laughs> I, well, in early COVID days, 
when shit was really we had, we had that we had that conversation oh we did in right which, yeah in so, which uh, i encouraged you to uh, yeah to do this. i i i started i did start and i i don't know I, I guess i'm not ready the reason i really started i think i told you this already but was i was worried but just just forgetting things like i'm really not nostalgic and i don't think about or remember much like specifically you know about all these chapters and stuff um when i talk about it obviously i do um so i that was the big impetus was like you better start writing this stuff before you forget or whatever but i don't know when i when i started to actually do it i got bored really fast and i was and i think so it's just like i'm just not ready i'm i, I get too bored with like my own story i'm it's i don't know it's it's not I'm not ready to like look at myself for that long yet. I'm sure it's a card you kind of, I don't know. It's a card you kind of play at the end. Maybe. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not ready. Or, yeah. I or don't, I'm, lazy, yeah, I'm not, one of the two. I guess I'm not, I'm not even necessarily, it doesn't even necessarily have to be like a memoir because there is an inherent kind of, you know, that comes with its baggage. But I feel like um, the, you know, the, the dancing generally is lacking in, you know, good chronicles. You yeah. know, I think there are. You know, there's, there's a few. There's a few decent books about. You know, very. You know, Simon Reynolds and you know, a few other people have done stuff which is readable. But like, there's not a lot. Certainly from certainly from people who have lived the life. Yeah. You know, properly lived the life. Like, and and as a, as opposed to just observed. Yeah, I would there's, love this. This gone. I know. I I would. Yeah. No, I know exactly what you mean. I think. Like, again, to say, you know, <laughs> I have all these stupid ideas. Well, first of all, I'm lazy. I am lazy. I mean, there's a, there's an element of laziness to it. Like, I'm not one of the, they're those people, I have friends, like, I don't know. I think you're even probably one of those people. Like, they're people that are very good about, like, I remember I met you that time and you were like, I'm taking a year off. By the way, that was... <laughs> quite ahead of the curve on that one but uh i remember you were like i'm oh taking my, that, was, a that was the best time decision i've ever made in my life well i remember but even that type of decision a friend of mine like gonzalez he does things like that he's like okay from june to february i'm creating this and i'm just like i'm really bad about that stuff and there's a there's a commitment level required i i, I struggle with that's oftentimes why i work with other people because you can't squirm away when you're in the room with them you know um but on a deeper level i think it's like I have this idea that, yeah, again, like I just want to make music or make things, this like kind of romantic vision of the artist where I guess I don't see the book fitting into that yet. You know, like I, I see that more as like a, I don't know. It's like not quite as romantic. Yeah, no, I can see that. I can not see so that. Not so romantic. I mean, it's, like- it's a bit more like, okay, you're kind of like, you, 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 I guess it's you're giving so much away. You know, you're giving all this stuff away. Right, and for me, yeah, it's always, right. for me, that's always a bit the consolation prize. It's, it's, but obviously. Drawing back the curtain. Right? Yeah, drawing back the curtain. And also too, it's like, it's not that there's something so exciting to preserve. It's just like, I don't know. But then again, it could be, it could be, if it was written well, then it would be art and then it would be beautiful and then it would be cool. Well, that's but, why, that's why I want you to do it, man, because uh, I know it will be, I want to, I want to read it basically. That's, that's okay. Well, I, I, I really appreciate the, a couple of times you said that and it's nice to hear, you know, it's, it's an encouraging thing. And I think eventually I'll do it. I'll see what I remember by that time, because also there's a lot of, we won't get into it now, but my, my childhood 
is really crazy. Like growing up in India and all that stuff. You know what? I had I had that on my list. It's okay to leave things, it. It's, it's fine. We will we will uh, perhaps do this another time uh, at a later date. It's totally uh, fine. It's just it, it's it's just that in terms of a book, it's really this extra interesting point that like you're even on dance floors when you're like seven years old and and you kind of so there's a anyway whatever one day for now this for now this podcast covered a lot so that that, that'll well (laughs) it's like until you get the book thanks for doing it man i really appreciate it it's been great talking to you no i I really appreciate some interesting ground yeah i really liked it i had a lot of fun it's nice to be on the other end because i it's quite stressful hosting a podcast in a way like it i i know what it's like so it's very chill to be the guest i appreciate it and and in this era it's nice to talk to people that's why i do the podcast it's just nice to have conversations and because you don't get to see people so much i appreciate it thank you paul so that was tiga and um yeah i hope you enjoyed that as much as i enjoyed having the conversation itself. He's got so many interesting insights and he's obviously done so much in music, uh, had so much success, but also it was great to get a bit of an insight into, um, you know, things in his career that he's not so happy with, which, you know, sometimes uh, people are not so keen to discuss. So that was great. And I'm really happy with how it turned out. So just a couple of other things before we go. I have re-released my album as SCB from 2018 which is called Kaibu um it's the Kaibu Redux and um I've released it again because I wanted to change the track list a bit I wanted to add some more tracks I went back to it recently and it just didn't really make sense to me uh as a record and it didn't it didn't make sense in the way that I wanted it to I remember I remember wanting it to anyway at the time I think I got a bit distracted by different formats and you know the way streaming was was uh panning out um the way best way to approach that obviously <laughs> in context of comments that I've made on this show previously um but anyway it's now 15 tracks um they're all tracks I made around the same time so I think it it makes a lot more sense now as an album and because all the tracks have been out before. It's up as Name Your Price on Bandcamp, so you can basically get it free if you wish. Obviously, it would be nice if you paid something for it, but I mean, you know, no pressure <laughs> at all on that. Also on Bandcamp, on the Hot Flush page, um, hotflush.bandcamp.com, we have a brand new compilation of early Hot Flush tracks up, early dubstep stuff, which, in fact, I discussed a bit with Tiger in this week's episode. So... There are a load of tracks in that album. It's called Hot Flush Selection 2003 to 2007, and that's exclusively on Bandcamp. So, um, yeah, you can get involved on there. We have our first release of the year on Rhythm Nation, which is our Hot Flush sister label, one of the sister labels. Um, that's by Dart, really exciting young producer from Dublin, Ireland. Release is called Tonic Ice, and it's got a remix on the release as well from Isaac Rubin. And, um, yeah, kicking off the year with that there will be more release news coming up soon we've got a really packed schedule for the first few months of the year so um yeah um i will update you on future episodes so um right this has been the not a diving podcast we would be extremely grateful if you would leave us a review or a rating wherever you're listening to this um once again as i said at the top join us in the discord there's a link in the show notes to join us there if you want to add something to the discussion and um Yeah, I will see you next week 
for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you for listening and I will check you back here for that. Thanks. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.